welcome to the very first Metacast interview episode. In this series, we invite the most interesting people in the gaming space to share with you their stories, successes, mistakes, insights, advice, and spicy takes. You can expect conversations with startup founders, CEOs, leading opinion makers, investors, experts, and more. I'm your host, Nico, and in this Maiden episode, I have the pleasure of having a conversation with Moritz Bayer-Lenz. Moritz started his professional adventure in games 20 years ago when he was the number one ranked player in the world for Diablo 2. He then spent a few years at IBM, got his MBA at Stanford, built out Goldman Sachs' division of gaming and esports, and last year he started his current role as partner at Bitcraft. For those of you who don't know, Bitcraft is the number one ranked gaming VC with over $400 million in AUM. I've had the chance to talk to Moritz a couple of times before this, and I can confirm that on top of his professional achievements, he's also just a really cool dude. Moritz, welcome to the Metacast. Thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure. Moritz, where does this podcast find you? I'm in uh, Santa Monica, sunny Santa Monica, Silicon Valley of Game Studios. All right, let's kick this off with yeah, maybe the most important question. What game are you currently playing? Oh boy. Um, currently for me, it's Rocket League. Uh, hard stuck in champ, trying to desperately get to Grand Champ. I, I don't know the tier list. In, in That's pretty good, right? It's decent. I mean, maybe it's it's around kind of like top five-ish percent. Still still okay. a lot of way to go. Nice. Oh, it's still pretty good. I, I guess like you don't have that much time to put to this. So uh, still pretty good. All right, let's uh, start our conversation at the beginning. At a young age, in the early days of modern esports, you became an esports athlete in the Blizzard game Diablo 2. Can you tell us about how that was and how that experience impacted the way you look at the gaming industry today? Yeah, um, so this was in the early 2000s. Um, I, I genuinely believe that that early exposure to esports and competitive gaming probably not only shaped my perspectives on the gaming industry, but but almost life as a whole. So this was a kid that grew up in rural Germany. Uh, we were in a town that only got connected to the internet, I think in 2001. Um, and as, as soon as that happened, um, the digital world was just so much more exciting than the physical surrounding. And it was, was very easy to make a case to kind of like dive into this, you know, six hours a day, eight hours a day, pretty mm -hmm. much every day for a couple of years. Um, and I think for me, Apart from the fact that I believe I learned my my fundamentals in in the English language and and economics and, and and a bunch of other interesting topics from this video game, I think it also instilled in me really the perspective that you know there, there's so much opportunity and and so many things you can do in the digital world, um, the ways in which you can express yourself in this very open um, you know almost limited options universe that was Diablo II. Um, transferred to me um, also into the physical realm and just thinking more broadly about what, what are all the interesting things you can do in your life almost you know in, in the same way you can do all these interesting things inside the video game but with with regards to gaming and I guess investing in gaming Diablo 2 was a great example of how important it is to build a game that can and remain you know be interesting over such a long time right and mm -hmm. and, and I think a lot of this was around getting the balancing right, getting the character design right, getting the incentive loops right. I mean, those are still the key things for game developers today, even though games might look 
very different, these mm -hmm. are still incredibly important things to nail. Yes, totally. I think that for many of us, games had a profound impact on our lives and still shape the way we look at the world um, and the future today. And so after that, you went to university, spent seven years at IBM, got your MBA at Stanford, and then you went to work at Goldman Sachs. And there you advised the world's leading public companies on over 300 billion worth of transactions. What was your time there like? I mean, it was an interesting time, you know, like it, it, it was a crazy amount of transaction volume in, in tech during those years. Um, and I was, I was very lucky to kind of be at the nexus. Goldman had obviously built itself a very nice reputation and positioning in tech investing broadly. And so it, you know, to me, what drew me to Goldman was actually the ability to have an impact, even at an early age, um, in an industry that I was passionate about, which, which was technology for me, kind of like coming out of a fascination from video games, maybe also into computer science, and then, you know, the time with IBM, and, and then to Goldman, it was specifically important for me to work in the tech division, because um, mm -hmm. I thought there was so much interesting stuff happening, and it was a great opportunity to actually have, you know, a, 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 at least a small contribution in shaping the, the deals that actually had a big impact both for for companies but also for consumers mm -hmm. and how was the workload it was rough you know i mean i i don't think it's a secret that that people work hard um mm -hmm. to be honest though I, I think investment banking and and you know the the work-life balance and you know the alleged suffering is, is sometimes a little bit misportrayed um mm -hmm. i can i can tell you that I worked extremely hard and hours were very long. At the same time, there was a strong sense of camaraderie and I, mm. I thoroughly enjoyed my years. You know, I, I mean, I stayed there for five years. I think the median tenure is only about 18 months, which mm -hmm, is, which mm -hmm. is somewhat absurd. Um, and I think for a lot of investment banks, it is a bit of a mercenary job. And then people come there as a, as a, you know, stepping stone for, for a career, really not enjoying their time as a, as a banker. I don't think that was true for many others in my department. And, and it certainly wasn't true for me. I, I, I left Goldman with a lot of fond memories, great mm -hmm. friendships, incredible mentors, and just a ton of fun projects to get done. Mm -hmm. That's really awesome. And could you tell us a bit more about next to that, what you took away uh, insights wise? Like, uh, what did you learn there that still influences what you do today? Yeah, so I, I actually came into banking um, without a lot of formal training in accounting and finance. You know, mm -hmm. when, when, when I got to Stanford, which is probably the only place where I had exposure to the disciplines prior to joining Goldman, I even asked the academic committee on, on I think it was our first week of uh, school, whether I actually had to take accounting and finance or whether that was, uh, you know, both, both of them or whether that was a mistake. And to mm -hmm. me, those were synonyms. And it turns out they're, they're both <laughs> pretty useful and different. Um, so first and foremost, I think Goldman for me was a solid um, training just in kind of like speaking the language of finance. Um, that was for us mostly, you know, large scale transactions, um, mm -hmm. you know, venture capital now with, with Bitcraft, I'm almost on the other side of the spectrum in the mm -hmm. early stage world, but still very applicable lessons in, in you know, reading financial statements, which is mm -hmm. even even in the early stage, uh, maybe not for a pre-seed or seed round, but certainly for an A round, B round, just as essential as it is for, for scale transactions. Um, next to these huge transactions, you also built and co-led the firm's global gaming and esports practice. Can you tell the story about how that came to be? 
Yeah, so, you know, with, with those large transactions happening in parallel, which was my formal mandate, I, I came into Goldman with, with, you know, the ask to do tech transactions. I actually said, I don't want to do media, I don't want to do telecom. Goldman um, uh, aggregates tech, media, and telecom under their TMT brand. Mm. Um, but I expressed strong interest to kind of like stay outside of those other two sectors. Um, and I was sitting there and, and thinking, you know, with my little PL responsibility taken care of, what was it in this franchise that I could put my own stamp on? And I kind of like came back to my early. Uh, days and my teenager days and my, my passion around gaming and I was looking at the you know market data and it was pretty obvious at the time that gaming was about to become the number one media category it is mm -hmm. today right it surpassed linear tv recently um, this is now a 200 billion dollar industry I think it used to be around 150 billion in, in 2016 when I when I took a closer look um and we had done big gaming deals at Goldman, but we didn't have a formal practice. There were no industry thought pieces. Um, there was no coherent client coverage. And we simply weren't positioning us for what seemed like a, a slate of upcoming interesting deals and opportunities. And so I raised my hand and, and together with a now partner, uh, you know, founded and, and then co-led the uh, gaming and esports practice over the last four years of my tenure at Goldman. And, and basically became Goldman's gaming and esports guy during this time, which is also um, the, the context in which I got introduced to Jens and the Bitcraft team. Because it was very hard spending time at the intersection of gaming and finance and not continuously running into Bitcraft. Mm, yeah, yeah, I've seen that. Yeah. So you you uh, you founded the gaming and esports uh, part of Goldman Sachs. How important was the esports part of that? So. You know, it's if you compare gaming and esports just by the numbers, right? You'll very quickly see that esports is a small fraction. You know, the, the mm -hmm. business of competitive video gaming is a small fraction of the overall business of gaming or you mm -hmm. know business of gaming content. That the, the, the two hundred billion, um, uh, you know, headline numbers is really PC, uh, mobile, console, and a few other um, end device um, content formats and, and mm -hmm. in-game transactions. And esports versus that stands at I think now 1.1 billion uh, mm -hmm. or, or so, but it's it's a bit of a question where you draw the line. I think for for us at Goldman it was huge because even though it was such a small industry, we were the first ones to publish. Um, I think it was a 50-page report on the ecosystem and the business of esports um, that simply didn't exist at the time. A primer like that and it had a Goldman logo on it. And it actually circulated quite nicely through the industry. Um, mm. There was no other bank focused on it. There was no other consulting company focused on it. So we got an early footing. And then in 2017, the professional league started forming around League of Legends and Overwatch. Suddenly, there was a lot of um, institutional interest, family office interest in investing in these teams, which now needed $20 million to pay for their medallions to secure the, the city spot in these mm -hmm. franchises. And suddenly esports in 2017 was all over the place. So our timing to lean into this in, in 2016 and have our name and our materials out there was big. Um, and ultimately along of a, a lot of our esports thought leadership kind of like translated into just being perceived as a leader in, in gaming, which resulted in, in us being mandated on some of the key gaming transactions, right? So this, this franchise, you know, during my time and then also after I left, 
um, led IPOs, uh, including Corsair, Unity, Roblox. Um, the Zenimix sale was, was done uh, last year to Microsoft. And so, yeah, even though esports is small, I think for a lot of institutional capital, g gaming and esports kind of like went, went hand in hand. So it was still a very mm -hmm. valuable asset. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so in general, looking back on your experience at Goldman Sachs, what takeaways or lessons did you walk away with? with? Anything informative that helped you better understand the industry or better uh, prepare you for your next step as a VC? Yeah, I mean, a, a lot of the conversations I had back then, um, including with with capital that was looking to invest in the space, because you know what happened almost alongside my investment banking activity, which is an advisory uh, act mm -hmm. activity, uh, you know, supporting M&A, uh, equity and debt financing, as, as you said, um, I just received a lot of calls, including from our private wealth management division that, that had a lot of um, you know, in, investors looking at the space and seeking for advice where to put their money. So in, in, in some way, I was already uh, putting one foot into ha having the investor head on, or at least at least trying to have smart answers for, for investors who are asking for my advice. Um, and a lot of the conversations ultimately centered around the constituents of the ecosystem and who has the power and, and where's the risk and where's the reward, right? And it's certainly an interesting dynamic in the gaming ecosystems with the IP holders and publishers um, today getting the largest piece of the cake, exercising the most control. Um, it's also an interesting uh, power dynamic with regards to, to esports and, and esports leagues. And I think almost everything you do as a startup inside the gaming ecosystem, if you're not an IP holder or trying to be one or you know, be, be founding a new game studio, there's always the question in the back of the head, how will this play out within that power dynamic? Um, how much do you rely on IP holders? Um, should you yourself even be an IP holder or, or do you need to be more neutral um, for, for what you're trying to build here and, 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 and trying to get across in, in, in players' hands or in, in companies' hands. And so I think that's still something that we look at when we invest in, in our startups. Probably it's, it's relevant for like 70, 80 percent of the, of the companies we look at, you know, no, no matter where they are in this ecosystem. Hmm, interesting. And so beginning of last year, you decided to go on a new adventure and went from helping and advising the world's largest corporations to doing the same for the smallest ones. Uh, what was the catalyst for for this switch? What made you decide to go for it? And how was it to go from working for you know, such a huge corporation with tens of thousands of employees to a small distributed team of less than 20? Yeah, and, and I think, by the way, we were eight people at, at, at Bitcraft the yeah. at, at, yeah. at the time. Um, you know, we're now uh, 16 plus, plus yeah. an advisory board. Um, yeah, for me, I think mentally, I always thought, thought of the... Um, Goldman stint as a, a, about a five-year uh, career move. Mm -hmm. And um, I just wanted to keep myself honest and, and, and actually <laughs> try, try and make sure I leave after the, the five years and you know, not, not get quote-unquote stuck there for 20 years. Because it, it is fun. It is a, it is a very rewarding experience, as, as I mentioned. I think it's very easy to, to, to stay. There are mm. obviously other incentives too. But... I think the itch and the um, perspective to, you know, 
build something and, and dedicate 100% of your time and, and maybe not just 50% of, of my time to an industry that I was so passionate about, there was an attractive um, value proposition. I actually left Goldman um, in the summer of 2019 um, mm. without having a plan and, okay. and simply, you know, cruising and, 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 and looking and um, being open to opportunities as maybe they found me or, or I found them. And mm-hmm. um, Bitcraft happened actually very shortly thereafter. So mm. it, it was a bit of a natural transition. Mm-hmm. Did you, because a lot of people who stop these big jobs think about, you know, starting their own companies. Did that thought ever occur to you? Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's obviously interesting to spend time uh, in an environment where you interact with founders every day, right? It's mm-hmm. like, it's very hard not to think about whether that would not ultimately also be something interesting uh, down the line. I mean, usually it works the other way around and you, you, you found something, you exit and, and then become a, uh, a venture capitalist. Um, mm-hmm. Apparently it works the other way around too. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, in, to some extent, the Bitcraft in itself still feels a little bit like you know, a startup, or at least something that we can design and, and take into so many directions um, mm-hmm. based based on where it stands right now, even just looking at the changes that happened um, since I joined in February 2020, right? Um, we doubled the team. Uh, we're investing out of five funds now versus two. Uh, you mentioned our assets under management. I think it used to be a lot closer to um, 100 million. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, earlier in, in 2020. And so I, I almost look at, at Bitcraft as a startup, a startup that just became very large very quickly mm-hmm. um, and is now this kind of powerhouse that we are all enjoying and, and, and filling with life and new ideas. And so mm-hmm. I don't think that's going to go away for the time being. So you probably expect more innovation and, and hopefully good ideas and, and expansion from us going forward. I do hope so. And so uh, when you go to Bitcraft's website in big, you see, let's build a synthetic reality. Could you take some time to unpack what you mean by this and how this influences your investment strategy? Yeah, so synthetic reality is, is a term we coined um, for the increasing convergence between the physical and the digital worlds. And I think we took some time as a team, uh, stuck our heads together and looked at all the things that excite us about gaming, esports, interactive media. And we're trying to tease out what's really the, the larger overarching trend that's going on here that summarizes everything we do. And we don't just invest in game studios, we invest in platforms, um, but we also invest in horizontal technology, you know, AR, VR, spatial audio, haptics, volumetric video, uh, blockchain technology things that you know quote unquote power the metaverse you know mm-hmm. metaverse ingredients or also design the interaction between the metaverse and and, and the user um, i'm using the loaded term metaverse here uh, it's probably one that that many listeners have heard um, but when we, when we say synthetic reality and kind of like the broader trend that we saw across all these was as humans we just spend more and more time in the digital realm and in many cases the lines between the physical and digital are actually becoming pretty blurry um, and gaming and esports almost seem to us as spearheads of this trend mm-hmm. uh, the most immersive most exciting most social forays of humanity into virtual worlds 
And so that's why what we mean by synthetic reality, this, this blending of the physical and digital uh, from a content perspective, uh, from a platform perspective, and then enabling technologies that make it happen. Mm -hmm. And so Bitcraft is by many considered as, as one of the best, if not the best venture firm in the gaming industry. Could you tell us a bit more about decision-making at Bitcraft and how, like what you and your team have learned so far about leveling up as venture investors in the gaming space? <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, leveling up in, in venture capital, I think, is a function of uh, good, uh, collaborative and, and, you know, critical discussions, even within the investment team. Mm -hmm. um, and then ultim ultimately, you know, in intellectual humility, right? And, and mm -hmm. as a team trying to explore opportunities from various angles, uh, tease out the merits, tease out the concerns together even us as a team we're actually pretty diverse in our um, prior backgrounds um, the way we work um, you know the formal uh, education that we might have received and then obviously the entre entrepreneurial experiences that that we've had or for some of us haven't and I think that's that's the beauty of a good decision-making process is to to have these mechanisms in place but then ultimately also have a system that can make uh, decisions and can drive to action even when sometimes it means that's not necessarily a consensus decision and could you talk a bit more about that system like how exactly does it work who takes the initiative etc yeah so we have um i mean we have a, an investment team of 10 uh, mm -hmm. all of us uh, screen new deals and opportunities um, so everyone in the team no matter the role or or the tenure with bitcraft can bring interesting opportunities to the investment team uh, and we speak about these opportunities very re regularly um, and maybe also despite uh, what some might expect we genuinely look at everything that finds its way to us um, through the website through the team network through linkedin um, there's a system in place where we actually screen and look at everything that reaches us. And so if anyone finds something they like, they have full leeway to take a founder call, to take a, a second call and kind of like explore the opportunity. And once they've built enough conviction around this, it's something we discuss as an investment team. Um, you know, how, how, how it goes from there, what the criteria are, how our investment committee works, it's maybe a little bit too private for this conversation, <laughs> but um, I hope that gives everyone the idea that we, we take a hard, genuine look uh, and, and mm -hmm. analy analyze um, a lot of the great things that, that, you know, could be future Bitcraft portfolio companies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think people need to realize, and this is, this is a Dutch saying, which translates into, uh, you have a no, you can always get a yes. You always have a chance at getting a yes. And so I guess um, yeah, people should just reach out more um, and just try. All right. Um, you talked a bit about like your investment strategy. Um, I'm curious to know what are like two or three emerging trends in the gaming industry that get you personally uh, very excited? Yeah. So I think as a fund, we're definitely leaning into the intersection of blockchain and gaming. That's mm -hmm. one that definitely keeps us entertained uh, mm -hmm. right now. Um, it just makes a lot of sense. I think that these worlds that become more expensive and, and more immersive and more social that are built in front of us have users care more and more about digital identity, digital ownership, digital assets. If I as a player invest 
time in these virtual worlds, time, energy, money. I want to make sure that who I am and, and what I have and what I own is secured and, and truly mine. And from my perspective, it's a natural fit with blockchain technology, which is, as it stands, the best technology that we have for a truly democratized, decentralized way of ensuring these things. Mm -hmm. um, and we see early successes, and I know you had on this podcast um, in quite detail and, and you know exploration into play-to-earn games. Um, but there are also interesting effects in blockchain technology that affect uh, not just players, but also creators and, and how creators uh, can monetize content that they contribute to these environments, which will ultimately the, be the way in, in which you build the largest and most interesting worlds um, you know, those will be the ones where users participate and you unleash the full creativity of a global citizenship, but you need to have reward systems in place. And I think blockchain is, is super interesting for that as well. Brings me a little bit to our second um, interesting topic, which is, I think, the creator economy and user-generated content. Mm -hmm. um, that's obviously a big topic right now that doesn't just touch gaming, but it definitely also touches gaming, right? We see... Um, many interesting companies in the space. We have our own, uh, you know, successful uh, uh, scaled bet with Manticore um, mm -hmm. that's, that's building AAA UGC experiences and super compelling platform play. Um, and then the third trend I would say is AR, VR. Um, you know, we, we had a first wave a couple of years ago um, where maybe excitement faltered a little bit or it was just following the standard, you know, Gartner hype mm -hmm. cycle. Mm -hmm. And we're definitely out of this trough of disillusionment, so to speak. Um, and we can, we can talk about this a little bit more, but um, I think AR, VR is going to be a really exciting opportunity over the next mm -hmm. uh, five years. Um, and, and this is something that will find its way uh, at mass scale into consumer homes over the next couple of years. I keep telling everyone I've got a the Quest 2 from Oculus. It's such an amazing device. It's so easy. You put it on your head, you put it on, and you, you start playing playing stuff. Um, and at an amazing price point as well. Um, so you, you, you talked about Manticore, and that's your, one of the, the successful bets in the, um, in the UGC space. Uh, what companies do you have in your portfolio that are uh, you know, taking advantage of the other uh, emerging trends that we discussed? Yeah, so on the um, on the VR AR side, um, we just announced an investment in Resolution Games, one of the leading, mm -hmm. if not the leading, uh, publisher for VR games. Um, Tilt Five is a super interesting one um, in in the AR uh, environment, actually bringing AR to consumer homes in 2021 and, and mm -hmm. not just uh, 2023 or, or four. You know, mm -hmm. depending on what the timing might be from uh, from Apple and Facebook. Uh, and then let's see. I mean, in the blockchain space, we have a couple of bets. We announced uh, Yield Guild, which is a very interesting proxy play on play to earn economies, including Axie Infinity. Mm -hmm. um, that is uh, uh, an investment that um, is, uh, is, is moon bound uh, mm -hmm. as, as it stands. And, and we're kind of like watching it with excitement and, and you know, we'll, we'll all be a lot, of, a lot smarter. Uh, about play to earn in, in yeah. a couple of months from now. But I think that that is definitely one to watch um, yeah. and, and, and kind of like a beautiful um, platform play on this idea of, you know, player owned assets and, and players taking their own financial freedom and creative freedom um, into a truly decentralized world and, and environment in a game that's actually fun to play, mm -hmm. you know, 
blockchain games still need to be fun games. Just just putting them on the blockchain uh, won't do the trick. Um, and then, you know, around UGC and creator economy, um, you know, Manticore is one play. I think another interesting one to watch is uh, Koji. Um, very flexible UGC, low-code, no-code uh, platform mm -hmm. that has found strong product market fit now uh, with creators in link and bios that really are a lot more than just, you know, quote-unquote, a collection of links, um, but integrate very comprehensive uh, mini apps, including, uh, um, you know, monetization options inside a link tree that almost looks a little bit like a creator app store um, without actually having to install anything on your phone. So I think Koji is, is another cool one. Um, I mean, we have about 50 portfolio companies now, mm -hmm. so I'm, I'm, I'm probably not, uh, I'll not be able to highlight all the exciting ones here, but people yeah, yeah. can check them out on our website. <laughs> All right, I'll do that. I'm interested in the last one. Sounds interesting. And I fully agree. I think the, the whole play turn thing, um, I mean, as, as I've been saying on, on the podcast, is I still can't wrap my head around it. And I'm so curious to see where this all ends up. Um, I think Yield Guild is doing something interesting, potentially dangerous. I don't know. I still haven't figured it out. Anyway, um, let's not go too in, into that too much. Um, uh, and, and so over the, the, the past months, is there something significant that you've changed your mind about in, in the gaming space, in the gaming industry? I think public perceptions changed quite a bit over the course of 2020 in a very positive way. Um, mm -hmm. I think for us who grew up with games and, and multiplayer gaming and just spending a lot of time in, in this universe, we almost always saw the positive benefits of this. And we always maybe looked at it through kind of like, you know, a lens of uh, affection and, and maybe we're overseeing certain other elements too that I think were portrayed somewhat negatively or unfairly um, in, in, in recent years. And there was a lot of criticism around, um, you know, certain types of games, certain uh, genres, uh, playtime in itself and screen time. Um, mm -hmm. And I think the, the crisis, um, you know, which is still ongoing, it seems, um, helped just create new shared enthusiasm from a lot of groups about what games can actually do and mm -hmm. not looking as them as a precursor to isolation but as a means of of socializing and mm -hmm. a lot of the things we see coming in 2021 and a lot of the startups we are looking at right now are basically taking these learnings and this newfound societal appreciation for games to heart and, and are leaning in on in those aspects of enabling players, um, socializing. Um, and and, and I, th that I find interesting. Um, th the other thing that came out of this is sectors that don't have anything to do with gaming, thinking about the fact, can we be more like games? So, you know, think of Peloton that gamifies mm. sport um, or think of Duolingo, lang uh, you know, gamifying language learning, or you could almost look at Robin Hood as gamified mm. in investing and wealth management. Um, you know, I don't necessarily like the term gamification or, you know, we at Bitcraft prefer to look at it as applied game mechanics, mm -hmm. not force fitting things to be games, but, but, you know, trying to see if all the good stuff we learn from games around how to steer users, how to reward users, how to keep them engaged, leverage these insights and implement them in um, 
I don't know, the, the world of insurance um, mm. and, and the world of education and many other domains that can be a little bit more like games. In, in the end, as humans, everything we do can be categorized into either play or work, right? If you really want to be philosophical about it. Play is safe experimentation without the immediate uh, fear of death and then work you know, hopefully there's no immediate fear of death <laughs> otherwise maybe you should think about a career change but yeah, work so. is really just like the application of of what you've learned during play and kind of like exploiting the skills you've acquired during during these moments of safe exploration right this is a little bit you know theoretical and, and philosophical <laughs> but play is really ingrained in the human uh being and then mm-hmm. the, the human learning process and so i think i think we'll see a lot more play uh, where we won't expect it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one I came to like a huge realization um, during the Corona uh, lockdown. So my grandma, she's like 85 years old, and she she used to play bridge with a bunch of friends uh, on every weekend, like in the afternoon for a few, for a few hours. And so she's living alone. Um, and so during the lockdown, suddenly like sh- there was a threat of of becoming super lonely because she couldn't see anyone. Um, and so. Now, what she does every morning for two hours, she plays bridge with that group of friends on her computer, and she has her phone with WhatsApp on, with like where she's calling and seeing the people that she plays with. Um, and at that point, I realized that uh, like we're all going to be gamers in the future, everyone. Um, and this can really be a way for us to you know overcome these you know, just physical limitations and distances, and uh, and just yeah play together. You, you make another great point that I want to hone in on, which is, you know, we'll all be gamers. We're, we're so convinced that, and what, what keeps us probably most excited about the industry that we're in right now is the fact that you have this huge generational tailwind. Um, hmm. Everyone growing up today grows up a gamer. And we who maybe were among kind of like the first generation to grow up as gamers will always be gamers. Mm-hmm. I think it's a misconception to think that gaming is for the young. I think gaming is for people who grew up as gamers and everyone now grows up to be a gamer. You can almost think of gaming um, as, well, I mean, you can abstract it to interactive media. Mm-hmm. And and I don't think any of us, you know, in this transition from from linear media to on-demand media will go back to, to linear media. Mm-hmm. I mean, with the exception of sports or, or other life events, why have anyone dictate your schedule, right? For the, the 30 minutes you want to spend at home after work and, and maybe get your mind wandering, at least I and I think many others resort to Netflix versus cable TV. Mm-hmm. And interactive media is on demand, but it is also something where you can partake in the media experience and where you can enjoy it together with your friends and I think people will just expect that and will expect more from their media experiences these days. And, and that's where gaming comes in. That's how I look at it. Will I be mm-hmm. gaming when I'm 90 years old? 100%. I'm probably not going to be grand champ and, and maybe no longer champ in, in Rocket League because that's <laughs> maybe a little bit too metorically demanding at that age. But yeah. there's other things, like you mentioned your grandma, uh, example. Yeah. Like, you know. I mean, at that point, we could just like plug a USB inside our skulls and you know play from our brain straight straight like that you won't need any motor skills so don't don't get me a, ex, you know don't get me started on on bcis so, and, and hopefully uh hopefully non-invasive but uh yeah, yeah, yeah i think yeah, that exactly. that's a separate podcast yeah that's a good idea all right let's uh, get back to bitcraft and investing if you ask a vc what their biggest mistakes are 
those are usually mistakes of omission where they passed on a company that later went on to become uh, a unicorn. Um, you haven't been at Birthcraft for that long, but have you already passed on deals that you regret today? Yeah, we actually had uh, we had a similar discussion recently, trying to kind of as a, as a team come up with our recent uh, omissions. And I think um, uh, we'll unfortunately have to say that Exe uh, would be one of them. But we're very happy to at least get a proxy play with Yield Guild. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's um, at today. It's uh, I can imagine that that is uh, painful. Okay, that's interesting. And any, anything you learned from from that experience? Yeah, I mean, it's look, it's you know, making games is hard, you know, yeah. and then and then um, making good decisions about where to invest and 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 where not um, is hard. And so, in in conjunction, there will be many things that that will land on our table that will become big successes that mm -hmm. we missed or or had a good conversation about and. And found more reasons not to invest and than reasons to invest, right? Mm -hmm. um, the quality of the decision-making process, uh, we like to believe, in increases your hit rate, right? Like that's, I think that's something you can say with conviction. It does not save you from um, making a lot of bets that will probably not result in successes. It will also not save you from, uh, you know, missing things that that will become standout successes as, as we saw i think mm -hmm. there will be many more examples going forward you know mm -hmm. it's always fun to to construct this anti-portfolio um look i we we, we now have 50 portfolio companies in uh in, in in the bitcraft umbrella we're super excited about them and and you know we we have some early breakout successes already mm -hmm. and so um you know, it's it's fun to go through this exercise, but then also it's 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 important to help the ones you actually invested in. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah that's true. <laughs> um, talking about the ones that you actually invest in, uh, what do you look for in the founders and entrepreneurs that you that you back? Yeah, um, it differs a little bit by category. Um, so we invest in game studios, platforms, and and tech. Um, I think for game studios, I mean, in in general, I guess the the one important commentary that overarches all these categories is the, the quality of the team mm -hmm. um, and the quality of the concept, right? Those, are, those two things are probably the most important things. And, th and that's true for everything we look at. Um, for the founder team, wh who are you? What, what is your background? What have you done in the past and, and accomplished in the past? What qualifies you uniquely um, to take on the challenge you're after right now in, in, in this pitch or in, in your presentation? Um, and concept is important too. Um, we've seen founders with stellar experiences, but without concepts that we could really rally behind. Um, and I would say being an amazing founder team is fantastic and we love those, um, but it's, it's a necessary criterion. It's not in itself sufficient. Um, yeah, I mean, and then, you know, I think for platforms and technologies, uh, questions include, um, you know, what what is your competitive angle vis-a-vis -vis others that are trying to do this? I, I mentioned the relationship with the IP holders and, and mm -hmm. game studios or content creators in this space. It's always something to explore. It affects um, monetization and, and, and business model. Um, and yeah, I mean, anything that speaks to, even in the early days, an, an unfair advantage for technologies, it'd be ideally um, patents or other hard uh, modes, um, but it can be softer than that too. 
right? It, it can be uh, it can be an unfair advantage that is based on expertise um, or, or or niche insights. Um, but yeah, hopefully that gives people some some starting help. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. When you look at the gaming space today, what are some voice voids that you see that not enough people or companies are uh, are looking at? You think I think in general, I'm surprised by the wealth of game studios versus platforms and technology. Hmm. And maybe, I mean, it's obviously fun to build games, right? But that, but I think a love for games can translate into many other things that mm-hmm. are important assets for the gaming industry too. Um, you know, and just because we have Twitch and, and Discord, which are fantastic platforms, it doesn't mean like everything's figured out from, from a platform perspective. There's still so many offerings um, that are emerging, uh, thinking about in-game advertising in, in games, for mm-hmm. example, uh, which is what one of our companies, Anzu, is doing. That's a massive, massive, still mostly white space. Yeah. Um, and Google and Facebook have built quite nice business around the idea of uh, you know, showing people relevant ads where the eyeballs are. Mm-hmm. A lot of the eyeballs are now in gaming. So, so, you know, why why are we not seeing more of that? Um, you know, I think there's still a lot to get right around the interaction of uh, gamers, especially when these virtual worlds increasingly become, you know, fundamental to our self-image and 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 existence. Right? If mm-hmm. we do live in a true synthetic reality, where the physical and the digital almost blend and you think of yourself just as much as the the, the, the flesh and in-person character you are in the quote-unquote real world as, as you think of yourself as, as a character in a video game or, or, or in other ways represented in, in digital worlds. I mean, that was certainly true for me in the, in the 2000s. Um, there's a lot to still figure out and, and get right, you mm-hmm. know? Um, and, and we have, for example, with GGWP, a, a, a platform that helps fight toxicity in, in online environments, which is also, by the way, a great example of a platform and an approach that needs to span games and needs to span IP. There's no single publisher that can figure that out by themselves. It mm-hmm. needs to be an, an effort uh, that goes across the entire um, you know, ecosystem. And this is also another great example for being very deliberate in how you design your interaction with those those content and, and rights holders while mm-hmm. being a platform that offers value across them. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right. Over the past years and uh, especially months, we've seen big changes in the gaming VC and M&A uh, realm, bigger funds and more spe- specialized funds, higher val- valuation, more M&A exit opportunities. How do you um, think the gaming VC industry will evolve from here? And how do you think Bitcraft is, is a part of that story? Well, hopefully we'll continue to play a, a leading part mm-hmm. uh, in, in this story. Um, but look, as the gaming industry grows, as the, the community of gamers grows, I think we're now north of 3 billion gamers on this planet and, and this being the number one media category. It obviously draws attention, not just from the general public, but also from institutional capital. Um, and we've seen a lot of um, specialized gaming funds uh, rise over the course of, let's say, the last uh, four or five years, roughly. 
Um, we're also seeing generalists being increasingly active in, in gaming deals. Usually that happens a little bit more in the in the mid-stage and, and late-stage VC landscape uh, compared to the early-stage landscape, simply because I think to get this right with founders and early-stage founders, they genuinely care about finding the right partner that truly understands the industry and, and, and also brings to operational expertise and, and network. Um, mm. I, I have a hard time seeing that change um, personally. But yeah, I mean, will this be an, an environment with more startup activity and, and will this be an environment with increased um, capital inflow and, and institutional interest and, and maybe more funds uh, entering the space? Yeah, I'd be surprised if not, right? Mm -hmm. that, that, that makes a lot of logical sense to me just as the industry grows as a whole. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree. Um, all right. I can imagine that there's a number of aspiring entrepreneurs in the games industry that are listening to this show, that, this podcast. What would you say to them? What would they need to do to have a, a, the best chance of getting backed by Bitcraft? Yeah, I mean, so, I mean, first of all, I think, as, as you pointed out prior as well, don't be shy to reach out, right? I think get to a point where you've honed into your thesis and, and you know, know your team and know your concept. Like when, when you do reach out, you want to make a good, strong case. Um, that doesn't mean that when you come back, you know, six months later, we won't look at it again. We certainly mm -hmm. do. And we, we, you know, we, we are very explicit about that too. Even if we pass on a transaction, we usually or oftentimes do it because it's just a little bit early for us in, mm -hmm. in certain cases. And we love to keep the door open and reevaluate at a later point in time. But um, think about think about your partners that you are embarking with on this journey. You probably don't want to do it alone, right? Assemble a team that can be your partners for the next few years as you build your game studio, your platform, your, 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 your tech company. This is the next best thing to a marriage that you have and you want to be wise about, mm -hmm. you know, who you will go, what will in, in inevitably be highs and, and, and lows through with. Um, I think the same applies to your uh, external investors. If, if that is a route that you want to go down, um, you know, especially early stage investors, if it is a significant funding round, um, they will hopefully uh, take an active role in, in helping you shape what it is that you're trying to bring into existence. Mm -hmm. um, and so make sure you pick partners that um, have the right expertise, um, are actually willing to roll up their sleeves and also share the same values and, and, and culture that you would like to instill as a CEO in what will hopefully become a, a scaled company. Mm -hmm. Yeah, speaking from experience, um, in early stage startups, you spend you spend way more time with your colleagues than you do with your your partner. So uh, be mindful of that and, and pick those wisely. Uh, so Moritz, you're still young. So looking forward to the rest of your career, what are some of your biggest aspirations? What what can we expect from you? I mean, we we have uh, we have a lot of interesting plans for for Bitcraft. Mm. Um, I mean, we're, 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 we're long not done here. Mm. Um, we, we ourselves are lucky to have incredibly, um, you know, accomplished and, and wise partners, uh, uh, alongside us as, you know, limited partners of, of 
Bitcraft, including some world-leading institutions, uh, family offices, um, strategic investors that are challenging us and, and, and are kind of pushing our thinking and have mm -hmm. built in many cases, you know, fair to say some of the leading organizations as they stand right now. Mm -hmm. um, it's been a great journey. Um, and I think, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll aim to continue on this trajectory and, you know, maybe beyond um, mm. for, for the time being. So VC is a, is a long-term game. Um, mm -hmm. Our funds are designed for, you know, 10 to 12 years. Um, and so, uh, you know, <laughs> I think, especially in an industry that's scaled, but still so excited and as exciting and, 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 and high growing, um, mm -hmm. there's a lot you can do with being a, a key constituent in the gaming ecosystem. And we want to shape this, not just mm -hmm. for the next 10 to 12 years, but, but decades to come. Mm -hmm. If your industry is about, you know, making fun, I don't expect it to get boring too soon, you know? Yeah, I mean, you'll, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll say so much. Like, once things become a full-time job, they oftentimes become a little less fun. Like, yes, yeah. we, 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 we see a lot of fun stuff, right? I, I'm, I'm not going to talk my way out of the fact that I think we all really like what we're doing. Mm -hmm. and, um, and we have a really good time kind of sitting at the nexus of uh, the ideas and, and the projects that people are working on that will kind of, like, be the gaming of... 2025 right or, or you know uh, around that frame so we we see a lot of fun and, and and crazy stuff um but a lot of our work is also um you know very hard deliberate analytical quote-unquote boring mm. and and cumbersome decision making and, and analysis um but yeah i'm i'm not going to start complaining here about mm -hmm. my job that'd be a gross misrepresentation i'd say mm -hmm. Yeah. All right. So, uh, Moritz, what is the best piece of advice you've received on investing in the games industry? I, I mean, I think it's it's what I just mentioned um, for founders to really think hard about um, who it is they want to bring alongside for the journey, not just in, in their internal team, but really also as external partners. Right. I think the the way we work and um, and it, it instills a lot of the philosophy, especially that you know, our founding general partners, Jens, Malta, and, and Scott have collected as entrepreneurs themselves over the last uh, two decades. It is very much centered around being founder friendly and enabling founders um, more, more than anything else. Um, and in a discipline that is both a science and an art, which is certainly true for, for games and a lot of things that, that center around games and game design. Um, I think you want to find a capital partner that truly understands this, that can walk with you through challenging times, that can help you think through, you know, things from game design decisions to monetization to maybe finding the right strategic partner or distribution partner early. This is incredibly important and it has a huge, huge influence on your chances of success. Um, so just, just as you should be extremely thoughtful about your team and your co-founders, um, I think you should be about, about your investors. Wise words, wise words. All right, as a final note to our listeners, I'm um, trying to make a tradition of 
asking everyone that comes on the show to give us a bold prediction. So Moritz, please share with us uh, what do you think will happen? Give us uh, any spicy take you, you expect. Yeah, so here's mine. Um, I'll, I'll lean in a little bit into AR and VR. And I'll say that uh, 2024 might be the first year where we see more AR and VR devices being wow. shipped than consoles. And I think, you know, right now we kind of like have about like mm -hmm. a five to one ratio in favor of consoles. Um, and, and, you know, 2020 and 2021 were and are big years for consoles with um, PS5 and, and Xbox. Um, but... Uh, there's going to be a lot of interesting um, consumer devices, both on the VR front as well as over the AR front over that time frame to 2024. You know, probably 2023 mm -hmm. will be a bit of a turning point for AR and, and maybe we'll have a mm -hmm. quote unquote uh, iPhone moment uh, for, for AR. Um, you know, we're all tapping a little bit in the dark here, but um, Right now, you see many estimates as high as roughly 50 million in shipments in, in 2024 wow. uh, for AR and VR. That would be roughly the level of, of where global console shipments are coming in today. And, and they are more or less flat. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's, it, if you say it like that, um, it makes sense. But I always thought it would be slower, you know? It would take more time. We, we, we don't know. Look, I mean, this, you, you, want a bold, you want a bold statement? That's mine. I like it. In, in, in three years, I'm, I'm going to call you back and I'm going to tell you, uh, Moritz, you were absolutely right or uh, absolutely wrong. Great. Great. This, this uh, podcast is published with the appropriate disclaimers. Yeah. All right. Awesome. Cool. Moritz, this was very wonderful. Thank you for taking the time to speak to me. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, no, this was yeah. really fun. Dear listener, Thank you for listening to this episode. If you like what you heard, feel free to give us a five-star rating, leave a comment, or subscribe to the show. If you have any questions or comments, let us know at metacast at navic.co. You can always find us on LinkedIn and Twitter as well. And you can find me in the reason.com podcasting app. This was the Metacast by Navic. We look forward to speaking to you in the next episode. Cheers. Cheers.